Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio for the third time today as we are trying to sort out tech issues. But if you end up seeing this stream, then blessings on you and may your children rise up and call you blessed. I am joined today by uh, Eric Hernandez, who is the Director of Apologetics for Texas Baptists. And so he is in charge of the Unapologetics Conference, of organizing that. And that's a conference I've spoken at several times and, um, and uh, love it. And Eric has been a friend for a while. In fact, it's an interesting story about how I actually first met you, Eric. Um, the first time I met you in person was before I had debated Matt Dillahunty, after you had debated Matt Dillahunty, I think. And you showed up um, at uh, the... Uh, the unapologetics conference and walked in with Matt Dillahunty and sat in my uh, breakout session. And I thought you were an atheist. I thought, here's this, I mean, he looks like an atheist. If anybody looked like an atheist, it's Eric Hernandez. And so, uh, but we, we became <laughs> friends at that conference. And then uh, in subsequent uh, breakouts, you showed up and uh, we uh, have hung, hanged, hanged out and, uh, collaborated and helped each other prepare for debates ever since. So I'm really honored to have you here, Eric. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. And, and I'm glad the connection's uh, doing good. So far, so good. And in fact, uh, Mike Winger, I'm trying to figure out how to make these things. Yeah. Mike Winger says, oh no, it's Eric. So anyway, uh, you've got some fans out there. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's jump right in. So we're here today to talk about the nature of the soul and whether or not we have them. And I, I was looking at, so, you know, this actually came to my mind, Eric, because I've been looking at the news stories about the coronavirus. And I've heard several people say things like how to, how to, uh, something to do, how to take care of your soul in the midst of the coronavirus. And I thought, Man, there's a growing number of people in the U.S. who don't even believe we have a soul. And so I need to have Eric on and let's talk about this. And interestingly, there were recent comments by Holy Kool-Aid, who is a YouTuber, an atheist YouTuber, and also comments by physicist uh, Sean Carroll on a specific uh, element of the soul issue. And that has to do with what is called the interaction problem. And the interaction problem, Eric can explain for us, but because of the problems seen with this or the proposed problems that we see with the interaction problem, Sean Carroll would go so far as to say, science has demonstrated that we do not have souls, um, which seems like a, an interesting thing for science to think they have any business talking about. But uh, why don't you explain that for us? And then in a minute, we're going to go to some video clips. Uh, yeah, so the interaction problem is um, <clears throat> it typically poses an objection to the existence of the soul, and it's basically uh, the question that if the soul does exist, then one would have to provide an account of how something immaterial can interact with something physical. Um, and the alleged objection is basically that if you cannot account for that, if, or if there's reason to believe that that can't happen, or if we have no examples of this, then it would... Uh, depending on who's asking or who's posing this alleged objection, they'll usually say, well, then there is no soul, kind of like the way Carol is actually uh, going to pose his objection here. But uh, as our good friend uh, Cameron Bertuzzi from Capturing Christianity uh, likes to remind us, uh, questions are not arguments. Um, so the to, to ask of how the soul interacts with the body if it exists, even – I like to first point out, even if I can't answer the question, it doesn't follow that therefore there is no soul or that um, – somehow it makes a soul uh, unintelligible. In fact, in my debate with Tom Jump, he, he brought this up, and I pointed the same thing out that um, I just said, that 
when you ask an epistemic question of how something works, it doesn't follow that ontologically speaking, the thing that we're questioning doesn't exist. Um, you know, I've heard other people say, just because I don't know how my car works doesn't mean I can't drive it. So you have a, a difference in uh, questioning whether or not something exists and then the question of how something works if it exists. And the primary question uh, for this topic of whether or not the soul exists should be that very question. Does it exist? Do we have reasons to believe it exists? And anything that would follow after that would be secondary issues, not the primary issue. Yeah, you know, Eric, uh, a related issue that comes up a lot of the time when we talk about the soul is the nature of human freedom, which both you and I have uh, done a lot of uh, work on. And um, when someone challenges me on from ultimately one of the more difficult issues to address with free will, libertarian freedom, is what is called um, or, or is, is the question of from whence does a free choice come? Like, is, didn't you do it because you wanted to? And, and didn't those wants and reasons ultimately determine that you would do whatever thing? And uh, I give a sim similar answer, at least to this much. Hey, even if it were the case, and I don't think this is the case, but even if it were the case that I couldn't explain to you how it is that a free choice is made, it doesn't mean that libertarian freedom isn't possible. Just like I don't know how my car works. I put the key in, I turn it on. It does work. So I think that's a relevant thing that people need to keep in mind when they consider some of these things. Um, there is no contradiction in the idea of us having souls. There is no contradiction in the idea of us having libertarian freedom. And I think both of those things are important. If, it were, if there were a contradiction, we'd have to say, yeah, the game's over for us. But there is no contradiction. So uh, are we on the same page there? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it, it, it again goes back to if something exists, my inability to, to explain how it works doesn't invalidate the fact that it does exist. These are two separate questions that we have to keep in mind, and to confuse the two just shows either one doesn't understand the topic in, in question or one is just trying to find – in other words, it's easy to say, okay, this is a great you know, a strong case, but what about this really hard question? And if you play Stump the DJ, where you're just going to keep asking questions until you find the one question that the person hasn't spent 10 hours plus of studying on, then sure, it, you know, you might be able to get a pat on the back or something. But when we're focusing on the topic of discussion of whether or not something exists, that should be the primary focus. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, let's jump. We're going to jump into a section of video here in a moment and <laughs> hopefully it will work. And second, uh, if you if you have a question uh, for Eric or for me, then you just tag our name when you write the the comment, and hopefully I will see it. Uh, we are using, as I said, new new software that hopefully will make the show better. But this is one of those moments where we're experiencing a teething process, and so not everything is going to work perfectly. So uh, uh, please bear with us in that. But um, all right, we're going to look at something from Holy Kool Aid now. And this has to do with a problem that might come and an example given from twins that are conjoined twins. So uh, to this point in the video, what uh, Holy Kool-Aid has said is he's like, look, if, there, if we have souls, then how does this make sense of the fact that some people are born conjoined twins where they're, they're, they're still connected physically at the head or at some other part of the body? And that raises some interesting questions. So I'll just play the clip and we can respond to it. I have nothing but respect for these adorable children, but cases like this underline the absurdity of the notion of the soul. What if one believes in Allah and the other in Yahweh? Where do they go when they die? 
And who gets what parts of their shared mind? Are the parts they share copied and pasted to their respective souls in heaven and hell? Now imagine two grown men, Hank and Harry, have the same condition. Harry commandeers Hank's phone and surfs the internet for Twinkies, but stumbles across the wrong website. He stares through his brother's eyes at the salty display of floppy noodly fun time and enjoys it. Which one of the twins now needs redemption for their sinful lusty ways? Take a similar example, Prince and Love Zalte, where conjoined twins joined at the stomach. Unbeknownst to most, your enteric nervous system of your digestive tract is actually referred to as your second brain. 90% or more of the body's serotonin actually lies in the gut, not in your head. And about half of the body's dopamine lies in the gut. And this is actually now the subject of studies trying to link what's happening in the gut with what's happening in our head. Now, it's not conscious, but this brain in your gut communicates with, but also independent from your brain. It's affected by diet and can influence your mood and mental health. If Prince gorges on carb-heavy food, making his twin feel lethargic, is his brother's soul guilty of being a lazy, slothful sluggard? Okay, so Eric, there we have the story of conjoined twins where in one case, uh, the individual, one of the, one of the, one of the two is, is seeing um, what is come, information that's coming in through the other twins' eyes. In another case we have, we, we realize that uh, the stomach has been referred to as the second brain. Dopamine, serotonin, some of the stuff that controls mood and happiness and pleasure uh, is, is related to the stomach. So if you share a stomach, um, and, and one of the twins decides to gorge on food, does that mean the other one is guilty of uh, slothfulness or something? I mean, um, you know, th these are questions I want you to ask, answer, but before you do, let me just say, uh, Daniel James Hole wanted to say, can you thank Eric for how helpful he has been for me in helping me understand the soul and arguments for and against? So you've got fans out there, Eric, or at least people that have benefited from oh. your ministry. Um, so yeah, what do you have to say about this about this idea that I mean, does this ruin it for us? Should I give up my belief in the soul? Uh, well, first let me say I, I appreciate uh, the person who commented that 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 really does mean a lot, especially if you know my story of how I got into apologetics um, <clears throat> and dealing with the soul. And you can find uh, that that testimony, if you will, on my YouTube channel. So <clears throat> excuse me, coffee, not the virus. I just swallowed wrong. Um, yeah. So uh, actually, these again. Um, Pointing back to our friend Cameron, you know, where he points out that questions are not arguments. So there's a lot to be said here. Um, but uh, w w before answering, one thing I do want to point out is in in, the, in that clip, um, before I get to the answers, it's funny how it talks about the, the chemicals that are in the in the stomach. And it, it's almost like referred to as a second brain. But he also says, but the but the brain's not but the stomach is not conscious. My question is, if, if everything's reducible to something physical, then why would you say the brain is not the stomach is not conscious? Why? It seems special pleading to say, well, we know the brain's conscious because it has these chemicals and these interactions, but we're not going to say the gut or stomach is conscious, even though it, we know that it has a lot of the chemicals usually that were usually associated with the brain. Well, how do you know which one is and isn't conscious? Well, it's because it's it's based on a lot of assumptions that you're using, and I think on a physicalist position, you can't necessarily rule out the fact that the gut or stomach might in fact be conscious. And that goes into even what's called uh, the P-Zombies uh, thought experiment. And people who know philosophy of mind uh, would be familiar with, with that thought experiment without explaining it. But I, I thought that was first just, just interesting for him to make that distinction without really an explanation. Well, yeah. And um, before you go on, Eric, I should say like um, one thing that we need to note is 
it's it's uh, you might think, well, wait a minute. Of course, uh, the the consciousness aspect would be more related to the brain because the brain we're we're our brain. You know, theoretically, we've seen enough sci-fi movies. If we could handle the rest of our bodily functions, but keep our brain in a in a jar or something and keep it going, we would still be alive. You know, our consciousness has to be in our brain. But what might surprise you, uh, and Eric, you can speak more to this if you want to. But what might surprise you is actually. We haven't been able to exactly locate where consciousness arises from and what exactly it is. This is why we uh, run into problems where people, you know, this is one of the biggest questions in um, in uh, uh, science, in brain science and philosophy of mind right now. Just earlier this year, uh, um, uh, uh, Unbelievable Radio had, Justin Briley had a guy on, an atheist guy to talk about, I don't know if it was the soul or something, but he was saying, yeah, I'm an atheist, but we have to admit um, this is a real problem. We don't know exactly what to what to make out of this. And so he he punted toward what I think Sam Harris's wife is has written a book about, which is this panpsychism sort of an idea. But the, the, but the bottom line is this is still a big problem. So I think your point, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, I want to make sure I'm understanding you, is look, we know that the stomach has something to do with stuff that we would typically think of as consciousness-related stuff or brain stuff. And, and of course, the brain has to do with stuff that we would think of that way. So if you're going to say, no, it has to be in the brain, consciousness has to be in the brain, it, it can't be in the gut, how come... How come? It looks like you're just playing willy-nilly with this. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, um, and yeah, Thomas Nagel was one of the first to, uh, I guess, make it more uh, uh, popular with his book, Mind and Cosmos, that, that position you're talking about panpsychism, where he himself kind of uh, um, brought that to the forefront, saying there, there are these – there are immaterial mental states and properties that we cannot reduce to something physical, and we have to do something with them. So um, it boils basically down to where do they come from? And – uh, obviously I won't be able to go into a lot of details over a lot of these arguments, but basically the problem is that when you look at the metaphysics and you look at the, the physical structures, we know that you can't just get consciousness squirting into existence by rearranging physical matter. If you get matter and rearrange it like Legos, you don't get something what's called sui generis to pop into existence, something that hasn't been there before, something totally completely new. In other words, I don't get a, a bunch of red Legos, rearrange a structure, add a few, take away a few, and all of a sudden the red Legos become blue because that the color blue is not something that is based on the structure rearrangement or uh, parts of Legos. This is something different than, than something like a structural property. So when we see that there's no way that you get neurons rearranging them, you get consciousness, basically you're going to have to say, okay, if consciousness exists, we know that it can't come from just rearranging neurons or atoms or particles. So we're going to have to essentially bite the bullet and say this is fundamental to reality. And if it's fundamental to reality, then it must be potentially the case that consciousness could exist in any and everything. So any and everything potentially has the ability to become conscious, and that's where you get the panpsychist position. Maybe the position that anything could be and – and I'm oversimplifying here, but basically you could take anything – give it the right physical conditions and it will become conscious. Yeah. So my understanding of panpsychism and you kind of gave a good one there, but since we're having trouble, so you, so what you laid out first was this whole idea that we're familiar with where um, physical matter doesn't think, you know, it, it's not conscious. Like we can imagine building the most complex Android robot AI right now, 
And there, we may be wrong, but I don't think we are to intuitively kind of recognize, yeah, but it's still not conscious. It's following programming and all those kind of things. So if you're a materialist who believes that matter is all there is, you're kind of left with this tough situation of saying, okay, well then how is it that we do go from physical stuff that isn't about anything that doesn't have these, these conscious properties? How do we go from that to uh, something that does? And so this panpsychism is one way that uh, some atheists and, and others would say that, well, maybe it's the case that everything has an element of consciousness to it so that it might be hard for you to imagine that an electron, for example, is conscious. And we wouldn't say that it's conscious in that it's thinking about what it's like to be an electron, but that it has an element of, of, of consciousness to it. And the more complex the arrangement of things, the more complex the consciousness becomes until you get to something like human beings. Now, let's table that for a minute. We'll come back to it. Uh, by the way, before we get too far away from the brain-gut thing, Mike Winger says that brain and the gut thing is interesting because some have ridiculed the Bible for mentioning the gut in relation to emotions. Uh, and it could be that the Bible is—it could be that, that there's something to what the, what the Bible is do, doing there with that or what the authors are doing. Um, it's important to recognize that different cultures uh, place the seat of emotions, so to speak, in, in, different, in different organs. Uh, based on uh, their cultural setting, we typically think of the heart. And of course, the Bible talks about the heart as well. So um, let's go ahead and, uh, well, first of all, I got a super chat here from Jim Amberg. Jim Amberg is basically the man who single-handedly makes sure that these live streams keep happening because if nobody else gives a super chat, Jim does. And I don't expect or require anyone to give super chats, but Jim, thank you so, so much. Uh, he says, I can't watch this, but I'll watch it tomorrow and it's going to be great. Thank you so much, Jim. Appreciate that so, so much. So um, let's go on right now to the, did you say everything you wanted to say Could, about that first clip? Uh, well, well, yeah, no, because we haven't really <laughs> touched much of the first clip, but you, you can see how quickly these things kind of just relate to everything. But uh, what Mike brought up was a really interesting point. I didn't want to bring it up because it would have led to other stuff, but since he brought it up, you know, and he's our friend, we, we can touch on that. Um, yeah, he's absolutely right. Um, and I've heard Moreland talk about this. Um because if you notice, the chemicals that were uh, said to be in the gut are, are chemicals that have to do with things like um, um, feelings of happiness. What's interesting, what's really interesting, and it, it's almost as if God knew what he was talking about all along. Fasting can and should and is used as a, as a spiritual discipline, uh, but also used as a way of just disciplining oneself overall in spiritual formation. Because when you fast, you're essentially telling your body you need to – Listen to what I say. You don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do. And even if you're hungry, and even if by being hungry, you're going to deprive me of these feelings of happiness and, and feeling good, it doesn't matter because I'm teaching you, uh, my flesh, to not react and, and act merely and solely on my emotions because I'm going to do what I should do even if I don't feel like doing that. So even in fasting, yeah, it's absolutely a way of, as Paul puts it, submitting the flesh. So that's a really interesting point Mike brings up, and he's absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, so so when it comes to this issue of, of the, the, the kid with the brain, you know, the, the two conjoined twins that are sharing yeah. this, uh, <clears throat> this certain features of the physical body, um, you know, and and then we talk about the person who gorges themselves, and then the conjoined twin who shares that stomach. What's the spiritual uh, requirement there? It almost sounds comical, and I don't. You know, Holy Kool Aid has been 
has has spoken with me a little bit in chat before, and so I appreciate that he's been um, a, a very friendly, uh, you know, interlocutor on these things. But I think he probably knows and probably intended a little bit of comical snark maybe in that because of course if we have a god who is a just judge um and one one individual if we're, if we're talking souls here one individual who happens to share uh aspects of a physical existence with another another individual uh it doesn't mean that the person who didn't gorge themselves is somehow culpable for the sin of the individual who did gorge themselves or who took drugs or whatever else you want to say um, you know, God is not legalistic in that sense. God is aware of what's happening more than we are. And so we can trust that God is going to do well by us and judge rightly. And his judgment does not rely on, um, our, our confusion about the nature of a physical body. So did, so anything more on that clip, Eric? Uh, yeah, well, well to, to first touch on that clip, um, is when it, when it talks about, uh, okay, so you have, um, these uh the these twin who's able to, to see through the eyes of the other twin and whatnot um so understand that when when these kind of questions are raised as objections it's basically an attempt to say that if you cannot answer this or give a a possible model which can explain this on your position then your position is insufficient because it can't explain what we do know or explain these phenomenon or, or facts well it's but but these are relatively easy to explain. Even if we can't say for certain this is the explanation, we can at least, at least give the possibilities that would make sense in our view. So, for example, sure, if um, if I if I am somehow conjoined physically with something or someone else, then it it, it make it doesn't make it hard to conceive of the notion that I could utilize things that are connected to parts of my brain that I can control or have power over. But I mean, that's no different than saying like. Let's say, for example, if um, you grab my arm and you started making me punch myself and you say, stop hitting yourself, we, th that's easy to conceive of, but that's because there's, there's a separation. But if we were somehow connected and somehow able to move your, your brain firings, were able to move the muscles within my arm, well, that might take a little bit more explaining, but in principle, you still have the same thing happening. Namely, you are using something that would naturally be considered mine. Uh, to do something that you want to do. But what I would like to, to see in those scenarios, does the other person, like let's say if you were looking at these uh, conjoined twins, does it have to first be the case that one twin gives up um, movement over these limbs in order for the other twin to be able to use it? Uh, I'd be interested in seeing, you know, seeing other hypothetical scenarios or, or seeing how this plays out overall. Um, but also what you mentioned about... Um, you know, is God going to, you know, which one is God going to judge for, for, uh, um, doing the, uh, uh, for overeating basically. Well, when you see these kind of questions asked, it shows really quickly how little a person has thought through philosophical issues and things of like ethics and metaphysics, because we know that actions in and of themselves aren't necessarily right or wrong, but intents behind the actions are what God looks at. The Bible talks about um, men look at the outward, but God looks at the heart. So obviously it would be whoever intended to do that, regardless of what mouth or hand they use to accomplish this sinful act, obviously God's going to judge the heart of the person behind the action, not just the action itself or whose hand was being used uh, uh, um, to engage in that act. Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, 
that's a good way of looking at it. It is the intention that we're looking at. So uh, these individuals that do horrible things like have their children, little small children, smoke pot or something, or in or in or if I injected you, Eric, with some drug in the middle of the night because we're sharing a hotel room and I wanted to play a horrible and devious trick on you and and injected you with some drug. Obviously, people would blame me for that. They wouldn't blame you for the fact. Yeah, you're you're now high, just like you would be if you did it yourself. But you didn't seek that out. You weren't trying to make that happen. Um, and in that sense, uh, we could talk about other things. Um, for to keep this a rated PG stream, we'll say forced copulation. When that happens, nobody blames the person who had a sexual act forced upon them. You blame the person who forced the act. And so right. I think I think those are good examples of where. Um, if you take it out of this somewhat un- very unusual situation of a conjoined twin and look at it with things we already know that are like that, it just doesn't fly. Yeah, and, and uh, I don't know if he's gotten to the clip yet about the, the splitting. No, no, we're, not, we, there. we're okay. not there yet. We'll get to uh, Yeah, so do you want to go ahead to another clip? That's uh, up to you. All right, let's, uh, let's take a look um, now at what, what happens when – so how do we make sense of Eric – doesn't this disprove the soul, Eric? If we have a problem where we have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere, we all do. Um, and there are these weird situations where you'll have, uh, at least this is what this is what they're saying, that you have one, you almost have two personalities. You have one personality that's claiming certain thoughts and beliefs and the other personality that's claiming different thoughts and beliefs existing in the same body. So uh, we're going to look at that clip now and see what it has to say about what if you have a brain where one hemisphere is a theist and the other hemisphere is an atheist. So here's the clip. Procedure. What happens when one hemisphere is a theist and the other an atheist? That's not a hypothetical. It actually happened. Now comes the big question. What if you ask, do you believe in God? So I said, do you believe in God? And the right hemisphere went straight to yes. Ask the same question to the left hemisphere. Yes, no, I don't know. It went to no. So here's a human being whose right hemisphere is an atheist and left hemisphere on the other hand <laughs> believes in God. And this finding should have sent a tsunami for the theological community, but barely produced a ripple because it raises all kinds of profound theological questions. Now, a completely separate phenomenon from split brain patients is dissociative identity disorder, formerly multiple personality disorder, in which one person embodies multiple identities with different beliefs, hopes, desires, and personalities. How many souls does that person have? And can the religious efforts of one identity save all of them, even if the others all follow different religions? Okay, so we have situations here, Eric, where one half of the brain is a theist, the other half is an atheist, or what if you have multiple personality disorder and you have multiple religious beliefs then among the different personalities? Um, therefore, Eric, no soul for you. The soul doesn't exist. What say you, sir? Um, I say what a dumb argument. Um, but no, in all, uh, in all sincerity, well, I mean, I was sincere there, but... Um, a lot, a lot of things to be said here. First and foremost, I go back to kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning is the reasons for which someone believes something are separate from, but how do you explain this tough situation? So whenever I argue for the existence of the soul, and again, you know, I, I, I go through that on my channel, um, you'll, you'll find uh, things like um, 
that consciousness is not physical and how we know that, uh, that um, I am indivisible, but my body and brain are not. Um, I maintain identity through change, but my body and brain does not. So meaning that all these arguments for the soul are not dependent on whether or not I can explain this unusual uh, alleged phenomenon that's happening. So when, in other words, no one comes to believe in the existence of the soul by looking at a split brain patient phenomenon saying, I can explain this, therefore I'm going to believe in the soul. Uh, second, which usually, again, when, when the person brings this up, it depends on who's bringing it up. Uh, depending on who brings it up is going to depend on what point they're trying to make. Sometimes they bring it up as, a, well, how do you answer this? If you can't answer it, no soul. Or they bring it up as, look, there's two streams of consciousness, so does that mean you have two souls? And they're attempting a reductio ad absurdum. But notice that whatever explanation you give, none of that would necessarily disprove a soul. Let's pretend the, the typical thing is, well, there's two, con there's two streams of consciousnesses, or it's creating another person. At worst, that would only prove that, okay, so now you have two souls in one body. Doesn't prove I don't have a soul and has nothing to do with the arguments that I give for the soul. But, uh, you know, and you can come up with a lot more um, examples of how you can explain this by conceding their point, and yet it still wouldn't disprove a soul. Nevertheless, let's go ahead and, for the sake of time, jump to, so how would I explain this on, on a, in a substance dualist view of the soul? Um, well, there, there's a lot of interesting things to note with these kind of experiments. First and foremost, um, you find that what often happens is when you have the, the, that middle part of the brain uh, uh, split, it, it doesn't allow these two hemispheres to communicate. <clears throat> and whenever you look at videos on these things, what you mainly see are people doing experiments where they have – like they're looking at a screen, and basically one eye – the right eye sees something on the left side, and the – and the left eye sees something on the right side or vice versa. And basically they're, they're saying, you know, what do you, can you, can you tell me what you see? And the person can't because whatever part of the brain is associated with those type of motor functioning is not associated with the part of the brain that's recognizing the object. So they need the other hand to write down what the person's seeing. Now, again, first and foremost, this, these kind of things only happen in these unique type of experiments, meaning Whenever they're done with the test and the, you know, the doctor shakes a person's hand or writes them a check, whatever, for doing the test, when they get in their car, buckle up, and go home, they don't have these issues. So it's not as if these people are daily waking up thinking, oh, my goodness, I have no idea what to do, and my life is ruined because I can't even walk two steps without you know, tripping over something that I can't see. Think of it like this. If you're looking straight and you cover one eye, then obviously there's going to be a, a – um, something that you're not going to be able to see on this side. And if you do the same with the other eye, same problem. But if you take your hands off your, your eyes, you can see everything clearly. Something similar is happening with, when you cut that middle part of the brain that connects the hemispheres. Now, what about the issue you brought up, which I have not seen done in test. I've, the only time I've heard this brought up is when this guy, uh, I think it's Fuzz Rana, who, who you played a clip of, and I've seen that clip many times. He talks about the test. I've never seen the test done. But let, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, this does happen, or these type of things do happen. Because what he also says in a longer version of that talk is that you also find that you know people with one hand will grab a cigarette, and with the other hand, they'll slap the cigarette out of, out of their hand. You know What's going on here? That's slightly different than the split brain case that's called, I think it's uh, alien hand syndrome, which may be related to this, but it's also a, an entirely different type of phenomenon. Not necessarily related to this, but people often group these two things together. What's mainly associated with these is what I talked about where 
you put someone in front of a screen, don't let them move their head and, and tell them what they see, and there's usually different perceptions. But let's go ahead and say that, in fact, one part of the brain is an atheist, so to speak. One part of the brain is a theist. <clears throat> Again, this wouldn't prove that consciousness is physical. wouldn't prove there's no soul. But how would I explain something like this? Well, it, it's, it's pretty simple. Whenever you – I'll say I'll, I'll simplify it this way. Suppose the right side of my brain, the right hemisphere of my brain is associated with my doubts. Um, if God exists, then how do I explain X, Y, and Z? And the left side of my brain deals with the analytical abstract thinking of how I came to conclusions to satisfy answers that alleviate my doubts. Well, if you cut that middle part of the brain that doesn't allow these two hemispheres to communicate, in other words, if you don't give my soul access to one side of the brain, and I can only access one side of the brain at a time or be consciously aware of one side of the brain at a time, then obviously – if all I have is my doubts, I might identify as an atheist if you don't give me access to the answers that I've already discovered. It would be no different than you um, um, having me study for a test and then hitting me over the head really, really hard to where I lose my memory. Does it mean that I am now two different people? No, of course not. It just means that something has happened that has limited or, or taken away my access to the information I have gained, and on the substance dualist view, the – Soul uses the brain and body like an instrument, and as I've often said when I argue for the soul, suppose I'm using a guitar. If you mess with my guitar, you mess with my ability to play the music. So it doesn't mean that the soul is reducible to the brain and body. It doesn't mean there is no soul. If anything, you can explain this by saying you've messed up my instrument. You've inhibited the way I'm able to interact with the information I've gained by messing with the guitar that I used to think. Wow, that's pretty good. I mean, that sounds like, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those deals where when you first hear a clip like that, as you said, just assuming that everybody's telling the truth and these experiments were right, um, you think, man, there that really seems like, I don't know what we can say to that. But that makes so much sense when you point it out. If you, if you cut off my access, one half of my brain, you cut off its access to the answers to these uh, doubts, then yeah, all I'm going to have is the doubts. Uh, really, really interesting. Um, and, I, and I shared that with Moreland before over the phone, and he said that was a really, really good answer. So I just, just want to shamelessly yeah, throw that out there. In case you guys don't know, J.P. Moreland is really well known for popularizing some of the good stuff about the soul that's out there and has a couple of books on the subject uh, that you should check out. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's, that's a good feather in your cap to say that you, you taught Moreland a thing or two. There. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. That's that's almost borderline blasphemy. But I'll say he liked he liked my response to to that that case. <clears throat> yeah. So all right, you ready for the next clip, or is there more to say yeah. there? All right, let's go on to this one. Has to do with well, where do these souls come from? You know, um, are there all these spirit babies in heaven, um, like some kind of Mormon Disney cartoon or something? And whenever we, uh, whenever physical bodies are, are born or reach to a certain place or are conceived or whatever, then God says, oh, grab another spirit baby and throw it in that body. Or is it, is there something happening during development that is soulish, we might say? Um, by the way, before we go to this next clip and talk about that, someone brought up a moment ago, I don't know if I'll be able to find it real quickly, but someone brought up the point about, um, as Christians, how do we make sense of the spirit soul? Uh, is that the same thing, that whole thing? You know, I know, um, I used to, when, when I used to preach, when I was a pastoring, I would talk about the fact that we had, um, 
these, uh, there are people that believe in that we are trichotomous in the sense that we are a physical body uh, and then a soul and then a spirit. And the way they would frame it up is the spirit is the part of you that gets redeemed or whatever. The soul is the, the personality and that sort of thing. I know William Lane Craig says the spirit and the soul can be used either interchangeably or the spirit is an aspect of the soul. Um, and so it's a, it's an interesting thing. Um, and if so, do animals have souls and not spirits? Do animals have souls and spirits? Do all dogs go to heaven and all cats go to hell? Probably, but you answer. Yeah. You want me, you want me to jump on that now? Or you gonna yeah, go ahead, and, go ahead and answer that before we go on to the next clip. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, uh, so quite, quite a bit unpacked there. Um, so the position I hold to is called substance dualism. And, and again, uh, I'm having to simplify a lot of this stuff just for the sake of time. So you're basically pointing out the fact that there are, there are two types of substances at play here. Um, when we're dealing with what, it, with what a human being is, um, first and foremost, I am a soul. What is a soul? A soul is an immaterial substance that contains consciousness, animates the body and as we're about to get into, also gives rise and existence to the body. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll say that after you play the clip, um, which means I am an immaterial substance, and my body could be seen as a type of physical substance. So you have a physical substance and an immaterial substance. Um, what am I? I'm not my body. I'm an immaterial substance that has a body. So uh, technically speaking, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body. But I am a soul, and I am a soul that has a body. And, and here is where I like to point out that um, actually I've recently changed my position on this because I actually do have a soul. It's a Kia soul, and it's orange, and it's about 30 feet from me in my parking lot. And uh, I, like, I bought that car just so I could make that joke. And I had J.P. Moreland in my soul a few months ago, and when I said – do you know what kind of car you're in? And I told him, and I told him why I bought the car. He said, you're the man. So that's all the validation I need, um, worth every penny. Uh, I have personally okay, so. I have personally taken up residence in your soul as well. This is true. Yes, this is true. And, and, and I love the fact that I could just keep making jokes as long as I keep this car. Um, so I am a soul. That's that. So when you use the word I, the word I is an indexical word. It, it refers to something. So when I say over here, here is a word relative to something. It's relative to a point. And when I say there, same thing. When I say the word I, it's an indexical word that means – that's talking about a subject, a self, an agent. When I say I, here's the question we can ask. When I say the word I, am I referring to an immaterial substance as, my, as me being the self, or am I referring to my brain and body? There's lots of arguments I can go into to show that I'm referring to an immaterial soul, but again, for the sake of time – Go on my YouTube channel. You can see the arguments there. But if I'm referring to me, the soul, then when I talk, when I say the word I, I'm referring to the self, the soul, not my brain and body, which means whatever else happens is going to be because me, the self, the soul is moving it. So think of a, a, of a captain of a ship. You have one captain of an entire ship, and this captain orders – uh, what the other people are going to do. He orders, you know, how, let's say it's a wooden ship, you know, he's going to steer it. He's going to uh, tell the, the, the people on deck, you know, how to turn the sails, what, what to do, how to pull the ropes, how to do all this. So he's basically conducting everything going on in the ship. Now, while there are different parts of the ship, it doesn't mean there's different ships. It means there's one ship and one captain of the ship. So think of a soul as a captain of the ship. Now, what about the spirit? The reason I, I am no longer a trichotomist, which is what you pointed out, I used to be, is because when you talk about 
philosophy of mind, you're talking about how many substances are at play here. If you have a soul as a substance and the body as a substance, which one am I? I'm the soul. So what's the body? It's something my soul uses. A trichotomist would essentially have to say there is a third substance, namely a spirit. So then we can ask the same question. Which one am I? Am I the soul? Am I the spirit? Or am I the body? Well, I, I think scripture is clear that we communicate God via our spirit. Okay, so let's say your, your spirit communicates with God. Okay, so when the spirit communicates with God… Am I communicating with God? If you say yes, then you have to say then, okay, the answer to the question, which one am I, soul, body, or spirit, which one of these substances, you're going to have to say, well, I am the spirit. Okay, well, then that means you're not the soul. So when your soul does something, you can't say it's you doing it. It's some other substance and entity that's doing it. But if you say, no, I did it, okay, well, then you have to ask the question again, which one are you? So the easiest way I guess you can put it is saying something like this. I, I ask people when they bring up this question, I ask them this. How because they usually say, How many parts do you have? And they say, You have three parts because you have a soul, a spirit, and a body. And I ask them, Well, how many bodies do you have? And they say, One. I say, Okay. How many hands do you have? They say, Two. I say, Oh, so you have three bodies. They say, No, no, I have, I have one body, and those two hands are part of that one body. I said, Okay. In the same principle, I am a soul, the self, and within my soul, grounds my capacities for other things such as communication with God. So my spirit. We can explain it as the spirit is the 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 mechanism, the capacity through which I communicate with God. Let's go back to the analogy of using the body. What part of my body tastes? Not my eyes, not my fingertips, um, you know, not my ears. My tongue does. So my tongue is the avenue through which I can experience uh, the sensation of tasting. In the same way, my spirit is that capacity of my soul by which I'm able to communicate with God. Now, you also raise another question. Do animals have spirits? That's a good question. Um, do they have souls? Yes. Why? Because they're conscious, and consciousness is not physical. Again, I'm going to waive the arguments, but if consciousness is not physical, and if consciousness is possessed by a thinking subject, then that thinking subject must also be an immaterial substance in order to possess the conscious states and properties. So if animals think, then they're conscious. Do they have spirits? I don't know because I haven't I haven't seen my dog praying you know, before – uh, eating dinner or whatnot, or maybe she's just a heathen. I don't know. But um, in essence, I am a soul, and within my soul, there are different capacities. One of those capacities is spirit, and it is my spirit by which I communicate with God. So you have two substances, and the spirit can just be seen as a part of the capacity of the soul. Yeah. So, and and that I think sounds similar to what William Lane Craig has said in the past. And one way we could, because me and my father used to argue about this a lot, because I would say, "Hey, I'm a substance dualist," and he'd say, "No, you need to be a trichotomist." And um, I think a way to, to look at this that is a little more stable and accommodates both positions is what you just said. We are <clears throat> substance dualists. It's not another substance. We have right. a physical and an immaterial substance. But in the immaterial aspect of our substance, there are different uh, properties or attributes or whatever. So that's pretty good. All yeah. right, let's go on to the next one, which is how, where do these souls come I, from after all? Can I touch, can yeah, I touch yeah, one more thing on that? Yeah. Um, so, and, and another thing, cause one thing you just mentioned, I just remembered was, you know, that even Craig mentions that sometimes these are used interchangeably, a, a really good book. I recommend, um, body and soul by JP Moreland and Scott B. Ray. It goes into a lot of great stuff. And I've, I, I love this thing. Um, but, um, and that answers a lot of other questions, but, uh, yes, the Bible does use, can use these things interchangeably. And there's a chapter on the biblical text and basis for substance dualism. <clears throat> but an important thing to keep in mind is that 
the Bible also uses certain devices like we would today to uh, focus on a particular part of something, but we're still referring to the whole of it. So, for example, if I said all hands on deck, I'm not saying I want you to chop off your arms and throw them on the deck. I'm saying I want your entire body there. But when I say all hands on deck, that is a figure of speech I'm using to allude you to the fact that I'm asking you to come here so that you can be put to work. So although I'm referring to the hands, it doesn't necessarily mean I want only the hands. I'm using a part to hold um, um, figure of speech. Uh, same thing can be used when it says like his face fell, right? We don't really think the guy's face fell or his heart was this or that. So sometimes, yes, the Bible uses soul and spirit interchangeably. But it's usually because it's trying to make a particular theological point by focusing on one aspect of a person while still referring to the person as a whole. Yeah. And uh, someone had mentioned something in the chat about uh, Old Testament references to soul. And um, and we're well aware that in the Old Testament and there is debate about this, too. But soul, in a sense, at moments can be interchangeable with just life you know, life in general, sure. uh, nefesh can be just life. But when specifically this person asked, uh, well, we'll throw it up here on the screen. Um, uh, Jaden says, how about that verse in Genesis that says her soul was departing for she was dying. Is her consciousness what is departing or her as a person departing from the physical world? And I think the answer would be yes. The answer is the life was going out of her body. And one of the most obvious, um, uh, uh, ways of knowing that or manifestations of that is there's no more consciousness happening. And so I think uh, without, you know, we want to stay away from sometimes what is known as concordism. That's where we look back at an ancient text, even the Bible, and we try to apply modern scientific understandings on what was written. Because after all, did the God in, in, who inspired scripture know all of the scientific facts and more than what we know today? Of course he did and he does, but he was communicating to, um, people in the way that they would understand and uh, using means that they would that they would recognize. Um, so when people say, well, wait a minute, why doesn't the cosmology always look exactly like cosmological models today when we see it in the Bible? Or why doesn't he why doesn't the scripture go into all this stuff about, um, you know, hey, one day you're going to hear about a multiverse and just once you know that's bunk or once you know that's true. Uh, why doesn't it talk that way? Because the person listening would have to say, with the soul or with all those kind of other things, the, the different aspects of anthropology or the, the universe, the person would have to say, wait a minute, why are you 